0: Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through icdl.com by using the promo code affecta15. That's a f f e c t a 1 5. You're listening to Affect Autism. Where Affect is the number 1 tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back listeners, I am Daria Brown, and I am thrilled to have a returning guest, Dave Nelson. He is a licensed professional counselor, a DIR expert training leader, and the executive administrative director of the Threshold Community Program in Atlanta, Georgia. He also is the father of a 33-year-old autistic son. In our last podcast together back in 2019, we discussed puberty and how we can best support our kids in a respectful way using a developmental approach. And today we wanna continue on that topic by touching on some examples and parent questions. So welcome, Dave.
1: Thanks for having me, glad to be back.
0: Well, I wanted to start with something that you said in our last podcast, uh, which really resonated with me when I reviewed it. You said that the developmental individual differences relationship-based model or DIR model and floor time, give us a way to think about and approach issues because we're not going to have the answer to every problem that comes up, nor will we necessarily be able to put a plan in advance that helps. uh, And this helps us start to think about the issues in an anticipatory way rather than being reactive.
1: Yeah, I would say I think um, this is one of the biggest challenges of being a parent of any kind, really, is that You know, you you have to anticipate and guess, but you just don't know what things are going to be like. I mean, in supporting the emerging sexuality and sexual identity of a child is challenging, regardless of what the profile of that person is like. So, you know, this is that part of it isn't so much about autism or developmental growth or anything like that. It's just about, you know, how do I support this particular individual and moving towards, you know, a functional, happy, safe adulthood? Um, and you know, we just can't, there are no definitive answers for any of this stuff really.
0: Okay. So in our last podcast, we talked so much about this developmental approach and ways to approach things. And, and I don't want to repeat all the stuff we said, but I will refer listeners back to it. There'll be a link at affectautism.com on this week's blog post. So please do go back and look at that. Cause there was so many, uh, golden nuggets of information in there about, how to, like you said, approach uh, this topic and, you know, what we want to keep in mind. So I wanted to jump to some examples and start first with um, perceptions of others, because this is something that I have really come to notice in the last few years since COVID, as my son is no longer this cute little guy. Well, he's still cute, uh, but now he's, you know, almost as tall as me, which, you know, is is not He hasn't even had his growth spurt yet. He's 13 and a half, but developmentally, he's more closer to a neurotypical six-year-old level Um, socially. I would say he's uh, more academically around kindergarten grade one type of academic learning that he's starting to do, writing and reading, beginning levels. And when people see him, they expect him to be higher developmentally than he is. Or uh, so that's the first thing. um, and they might notice, oh, okay, um, he's talking very loudly. He's talking a lot. Um, he seems to be talking without stopping, whether people are listening or not. and and that might cue them to, okay, maybe this is a neurodivergent individual. But the second thing, and this part really bothers me, is assuming that maybe children in this predicament, uh, should be in life skills programs, uh, or a path, um, versus really helping them move along the developmental ladder, including academically, because nobody knows the future and he may be considered, uh, to have an intellectual disability at this time, but maybe it's just delayed. And of course, he may still have an intellectual intellectual disability in 10 years. We don't know, But um, I like that DIR really, you know, makes the future open wide and presumes competence. And so we want to always assume the potential is there for a lot more. So those are the two things I wanted to tackle first. So people looking at your, your older child, thinking that they're developmentally at their biological age, and then assuming that because they're not, that they have some kind of cap on their ability.
1: Yeah. So to, to that first point, um, my, uh, I have a 14 year old stepdaughter who is a volleyball player. And so, um, you know, in volleyball, it helps to be tall. So there's a lot of really tall girls and young women that are in this sport. And, uh, I remember, uh, a young girl that I used to know when she was, you know, seven, eight years old, she was almost six feet tall. So she was just like an extraordinary tall person. And everybody that would see her would assume that she had a certain level of maturity and capability that she just didn't have, you know, and then when she would get upset or cry or whatever, people would kind of look at her judgmentally and say like, why are you doing that? And, you know, the reality is like, she was eight, you know, she wasn't 16 or whatever it happens to be. And so I think that's a hard thing for us to do just culturally is resist the tendency to, to come to too many conclusions about somebody based on how they look. Um, and I, you know, that goes well beyond the scope of uh, something we can solve in this podcast. But I do think it's one of the things that's really helpful and beneficial about the DIR model is just that it encourages us to look at people Based on their individual profile and their individual particularities, not just how they look or how old they are or whatever it happens to be. And that's why I think DIR practitioners are going to be more comfortable supporting an adult who still likes kid shows or, you know, somebody whose interests don't necessarily match up with their age or a parent's stage. Um, because really, you know, meeting somebody where they are means meeting them where they are cognitively and emotionally and, and in ever in all of those ways. That being said, you use the term presumed competence, which is, you know, sort of become a big buzz phrase, um, in recent years. And I think the underlying idea there is valid, which is we don't, we don't want to put a cap on what's so, on what we think somebody is capable of and we want to sort of presume the best or presume the the highest level of potential functioning in somebody and while i agree with that conceptually and i think that's absolutely essential that we not be arbitrarily limiting people it also creates a little bit of a challenge in that like how do you actually meet somebody where they are based on what they're presenting to us, and how do we not overshoot somebody? I think just thinking about my experience personally with, um, you know, raising my son before I became a professional, I think that was one of the early lessons that DIR really are, or the DIR professionals we work with taught us, which, which was like. Don't overshoot. Don't presume just because this person can talk or just because they're talking at great length about dinosaurs or trees or whatever it happens to be that they have the same level of emotional and social development that that a typically developing same age person might. So I just think it's very, very challenging to both you know, in a conceptual, emotional way, leave the door open to the top, you know, somebody can, maybe somebody will go to college, maybe they will be fully independent, maybe they will do all those things. And at the same time, really make an honest attempt to meet them where they are, and not just be sort of filling them with our our hopeful expectations about what they can be. Does that make sense? I've, I realize that's gotten kind of philosophical, but I feel like that's a really important part of, like, we still need to meet people where they are. And if what they are showing us and demonstrating to us and connecting with us around are a certain set of ideas or interests, then I think we need to be very respectful of that. And we can't just say, well, I'm presuming competence, so I'm going to assume that you actually are more interested in these things or more capable of these things. We have to do that in a very sort of cautious way.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make in that presuming competence. And and I'm going to have to look up. I know I talked about it in a podcast in the past. I'm going to have to look at which one it was and and what I said about it. But um, it's really about... Understanding that continuing to do the floor time and continuing to meet the child where they're at and gently challenging and expanding and all of the stuff we talk about in floor time over time as they move up developmentally, that trajectory is unknown. But like you said, in the moment, you really have to stay with where they are at and just nudge them to that just right challenge that I believe you talked about in another podcast we did about um, process-oriented learning. You talked about the just right challenge.
1: Well, and let let me bring this back to kind of this whole issue of puberty and sexuality and kind of not that safety is the only important thing, but sort of safety in that domain is an extraordinarily important thing. And um, and I, so I know that presumed confidence phrase in a lot of ways, at least in my experience of it in the past few years, has come from people who work in or support the non-speaking community. So people who are not um, using spoken language, but need some sort of supported communication or, or otherwise facilitated kind of communication and Like, I don't have the answers to all of that. I I certainly, you know, that's a whole nother topic of discussion to engage in. And I have an enormous amount of respect for people on the spectrum who are non-speaking, who have found ways to communicate deeper ideas to the world. I think my concern when we're talking about puberty and sexuality and romantic relationships and all of that is that we still need to lean very heavily towards... Um, safety and protection for people who are not able to easily advocate for themselves or who may not be able to uh, navigate from a communication standpoint, navigate certain situations. And so we do want to presume competence in the sense of presuming the capability and the desire for somebody to have relationships, but we also have to make sure we're supporting them in to make sure that they know what it is that they think and feel and to help them have ways of navigating the world safely. And that's just not everybody is in a position to be able to know that and reflect on that and act on that. And I, as much as anybody, want everybody to have as much autonomy in the world, but we've all, you know, either read A lot or experience situations where people have gotten themselves into difficult situations because they don't, they're not able to act on that autonomy in a safe way. So I feel like this is a, it's a, I don't mean to get us sort of stuck in the mud in all of this, but I do think it is when you're talking about supporting somebody into puberty and adulthood, it is, we cannot forget those sort of basic protections that we need to be building into the work that we do.
0: And, and I will refer people back to the the puberty podcast we did a few years ago because you went into that in a lot more detail as well. So um, hopefully people will go back and and look at that if they haven't seen it or if if they forgot. I I myself need to refresh myself because at the time I was still with a younger child and I was like, sure. oh, well, this is years ahead, right? And now it's uh it's my
1: reality. Time so, keeps <laughs> marching on. That's cool, yeah.
0: <laughs> absolutely. I wanted to. Um, move on now to some more specific questions uh parent questions so this happens to a number of kids that you know i've heard about through uh my social circles as this is a parent speaking as his social development has blossomed he picks up on phrases and words that make other people laugh or blush and then holy moly there's no stopping him based on context Part of that is that he doesn't know what he's talking about because we haven't had the talk. And part of that is his desire to fit in and belong and not having a social filter. So educating him on the information, but trying to support him on when and where this is discussed is really beyond me, says the parent. And I'm not sure specifically what things this person's child is saying, but my son started to saying saying to me, and I don't know where he heard this, mama you suck <laughs> and you're stupid mama um now that's not neither of those are super sexual but uh, or or sexual at all necessarily but um i think she's hearing things that might be more sexual and um also said that when this child says it in front of his brother his brother laughs and so in a family context, maybe that's okay because, you know, it's just brother, you know, brothers and parents, but then out in the, the world, if people hear that, um, and again, with the first topic we talked about, the child might be older and and people might say, why is this child saying this in public kind of thing? So I guess this two-part question is, what do you do when kids say inappropriate things? And secondly, uh, where do you even start with the talk?
1: Yeah. So I can actually give you a a I can give you a parallel example from um, from our community at TCP, uh, which is a young man when he was, oh, I don't know, maybe 14, 15, uh, suddenly started getting very interested in uh, women's bodies in particular, and he was using his phone to take pictures of people's butts and, you know, doing a lot of exploration and which is problematic. I mean, it's maybe Mm -hmm. less problematic in our environment where at least everybody kind of knows that the people that we're supporting are struggling to master these issues, Um, but it's still problematic nonetheless. Probably most of us don't love getting our butts taken against our will.
0: No, and I I shouldn't laugh, but I'm only laughing because it's, it's cute in an innocent sense if you think about a young child being curious but right. when it gets into puberty, it's totally different, and it's completely and, inappropriate.
1: and so here's, I think the the tightrope that we have to learn to walk, because we absolutely want to be validating um, and to go back to, to something a little closer to the example that we started with, we absolutely want to be validating of somebody's curiosity about sex and sexuality. We absolutely want to be validating of somebody's desire to be socially connected. We don't want to, you know, sort of be shutting down attempts to make, you know, social overtures or social connection. Who doesn't love to make people laugh? You know, we want to support those things, um, and at the same time, and I think this is harder for a lot of DIR practitioners. At the same time, we have to figure out how to be able to articulate and set limits. On behavior and communication. Because as much as we want to validate somebody's desire, that doesn't mean that we can endorse or encourage every kind of behavior. And I, in my experience, sort of training and supporting staff or working with parents, it gets really hard to navigate both of those. You know, and I, I, when I, whenever I, you know, sort of get into those situations and I get Stanley Greenspan's voice in my head, he was, I think, masterful at this idea of not being, regardless of what a child was doing, not being sort of offended or put off or stopping it, but actually really encouraging it as a driver of connection and interaction. And I'm also aware that so much, at least for me in, in my training in, in DIR, so much of the focus was on early intervention in young children. And so as somebody becomes an adolescent and an adult and they look like they should be more mature and they're talking about more challenging issues, we have to figure out how to both validate the curiosity and the desire to communicate and set some sensible limits and figure out ways to communicate those limits to the people that we're supporting. So to get a little bit more fine grained about it, I think if somebody is saying something provocative, whether it's your initial example of, you know, your stupid mom or you suck, or it's something more physical or sexual, you know, some sort of, you know, sexual thing. I think we have to come up with ways using our affect and our words to say, okay, you've entered a difficult area here. And again, this is not how you're gonna say it, but this is the (laughs) idea behind it. It's like, okay, this is not really working. I, I validate your curiosity and your attempts to connect, and this is not a this is not a way to do it. And if you want to, like, I think just in your head, if you want to make it easier, sort of replace whatever that thing is that somebody is saying or doing with some very explicit kind of hate speech. Like, would you allow that to happen? Probably, you would be much more comfortable saying, "Yeah, no, can't do that, can't say that." Or, like, would you let somebody run out in the highway to play? Like, no. And you wouldn't feel bad about even physically restraining somebody to keep them from doing that. So, I think we somehow have to tap into our values and our morals and what it is that we're trying to teach children without losing that really important part of supporting their curiosity and their outreach. So, this is going to differ based on the, the, the person that you're supporting with in terms of how how complicated language they can understand or how much behavioral control they have. But you're gonna to wanna to start using affective and other kinds of signals to say, we've entered a red zone here, whether it's a stop sign that you hold up or it's just saying, hang on, this is a private conversation only, or this is the kind of thing that we never talk about and here's why. You're gonna to have to come up with some ways to both in the moment and over the long term to support that conversation so for me just sort of reflecting on my own experience you know spending so many years learning how to follow somebody's lead and be non-judgmental and not be overly reactive to unusual or provocative things this is a little bit of an adjustment because you are saying okay hang on you've crossed the line and that is a part of what we're trying you know if if we are trying to help people be a safe, productive, happy part of communities or part of a society, then we do have to help them learn some of these things. Is that making sense to you?
0: It, it does. And I I can hear all the parents going, but how, but how? And as you said, it, it totally depends on the child and it depends on all of their individual differences, it depends on where they are developmentally, so many different things, but so- I, okay.
1: So let me try to dig into that a little bit deeper because I appreciate sort of like the frustration of getting like a vague answer like this is important. We need to do this, but you have to figure it out yourself. Like, ultimately, I do think that's true. But I think part of what you want to do is start trying to define some of these um, difficult or off limits kind of areas with your child. Um, And so that may be in whatever you have to come up with that language yourself, but whether it's, this is private talk, or this is, um, you know, this is sex talk, and we need to have some limits around where and when we can do those things. And by over time, sort of reinforcing that idea, we're in this area of communication, it's going to over time be easier to help somebody be aware of what's happening and stop them. But at the same time, when you're talking about somebody who struggles to co-regulate with others, who gets amped up and excited as they having these ideas and saying these things that are getting a reaction, it's also going to mean that sometimes you're going to have to separate people and calm them down and re-regulate them in those very basic floor time ways. You know, like you're not going to help somebody by separating and punishing them. You need to separate them, calm them down, re-engage at a basic level and work your way back up the developmental ladder. And I think the sort of practically hard thing for a lot of us, particularly as your kid gets to be 13 and, and older, is like... You're tired of being alone in the playroom. You want your child to be connected to others. You know, you want to be able to have Thanksgiving with the family or whatever it happens to be. So this sort of separating and calming and re-regulating gets more and more challenging at, at multiple levels. But I think so that you're not in a situation of just constantly disciplining or correcting or chastising a child for being in these taboo areas, you want to do what you can to separate and calm them down so that you can re-engage at a level that works for them and then work your way back up the developmental ladder so that you can then talk to them more reflectively about those ideas.
0: Dr. Gordon Newfeld talked a lot about the emotional playground and how important play is in um, channeling frustration. And so um, he mentioned something that you know, made me think of you just said something like, you know, this is our um, this is sex talk or this is uh, private talk or whatever. And and he said, that's when you'll put on your play hat. So not literally, but all of a sudden you have a more playful stance and you might be playful and say like, oh, looks like you've got some uh, frustrated energy coming out there or something like that. And Um, whether it's using a different voice to be different characters, doing imaginary play kind of thing. Like you suck. No, you suck. I'm going to beat you up, blah, 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 or whatever it is like working it out through play. So, you know, that it's a defined pretend space with no consequences to work through these kinds of emotions. Um, I mean, that's, that might be another option.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that. And sort of two things about that, that idea of play one Um, you know you're absolutely right in this idea that you know play is the best the best most effective place for us to help people experiment with difficult or complicated feelings whether it's aggression or sexuality or other kinds of provocativeness and so having play as a specific context for engaging in those kinds of conversations whether it's about you know, you suck, anger, conflict type things, or whether it's about, you know, sexual ideas of sexuality or attraction, you know, putting it in the context of play does kind of put a bubble around it to begin with, but also within that bubble gives you more freedom to act and react and respond um, without, not so much in a corrective way, but in a supportive, elaborating way. So it's like, if somebody is whatever, obsessed about, you know, butts, you can sort of explore that. Like, what do you think is so cool about that? Or, oh, my God, you know, if you could take pictures of anybody, who would you take pictures of and sort of explore it in that play bubble? Um, but by very being very explicit about the play bubble, you then, when you're not in the play bubble, can limit it a little bit more effectively. So it's like, OK, if this is what you want to talk about now, then we can go to this play bubble. We can't do it out in the rest of the world, but we can definitely do it in the play bubble. And that will be a place where it then becomes easier to talk about or play or explore those things. I think the, the worst part, I'm, I'm imagining, I don't know this to be true, but I think one of the worst parts about being somebody with either a lot of sticky thoughts or somebody who doesn't sort of communicate their ideas easily is that they probably feel like they're getting corrected and chastised a lot. And so we want to make sure that we are giving them plenty of opportunity to expand and elaborate on those ideas so that they can become more reciprocal and more more connected to the ideas of other people around them. And at the same time, sort of help them learn to to manage those impulses when they're not in those safe spaces.
0: And... and I've done so many podcasts about, you know, impulsivity and and other things, and we could go off on a million different branches there. I'll just, um, you reminded me of my DIR 201 course, my basic certificate course when one of the case presentations was about a child who was um, playing jail. And they said, I'm going to arrest you and, and, or I'm going to shoot you and arrest you and, and this and that. And I remember my, you know, newly non timey self being like, oh, you can't let them do that. Right. Like, and, ha- and Maude LaRue was the teacher and she said, uh, this is so important to let the child enact what they're imagining, because if they don't do it in play, they're just, it's never going to get resolved. And so you don't actually want children to enact things in real life that are super inappropriate but if they if they get and I, I might not be uh, saying this in in the way that she described it but my understanding was allowing kids to play it out um, helps them process it and then understand why it might not be appropriate in the real world if you can play with the way other people react if you're the other character like I don't like when you take pictures of my butt or whatever and you know I don't know I, I'm just talking off no, the top I, of my head i
1: think <laughs> i think all of that is is right and and i think the what i would add to that is that for and i'm speaking in general terms this is clearly not true of everybody but for somebody who um tends towards rigid thinking or tends towards very black and white thinking or tends towards hasn't quite reached mastery of multi-causal thinking so you know one one behavior leads to one outcome, that that kind of a thing. that that context of play, it isn't just sort of playing it out once so they can process it, understand it. They may need to do that a thousand times. And in that context of pretend play, you as a supporting play partner are then going to be able to offer hundreds of different variations on responses to that. So it does become a more generalized, conceptual understanding not just a rigid oh I can't talk about that kind of a thing because I I do think there is um, I feel like I've encountered this time and time again throughout my career where you know we think that somebody that we're interacting with has a nuanced understanding of something and then we suddenly realize that they have this very limited one-to-one correspondence like if I do this I will go to jail kind of a thing and that like so play the and the repetitiveness or the recurrence of play becomes a really important part of helping somebody develop shades of gray and multi-causal thinking and all those higher level capacities we think about.
0: Yeah, and I and I, I also want to make the distinction if anyone's listening and getting a tad horrified because I can think of a number of examples that can go awry. Um, like you said most important thing setting those firm boundaries so you know it might be one thing to i had a parent in parent support group say their i think four-ish year old is going and sniffing his sister's butt and laughing and they laugh because it was cute and funny but then wanting to set the limit too and the sister saying i don't like when you do that and wanting to make sure the sister. Understands it's not okay to let boys come up to you and sniff your butt, you know, for all the reasons. Um, and, and that being tricky, and that's more of a playful thing that is also serious, especially as you get older. But then there's something very different if it gets into serious criminal activity ideas. So we want to so, we wanna make that distinction.
1: <laughs> it's a, that's a that's actually, I think, a really brilliant example because what you're, what you're bringing in there is the fact that other people are affected by this as well. You know, like even, <laughs> even, if I had some idea that the best way to support that guy who's, you know, sniffing butts is to be playful about it and engage with that. You can't ignore the fact that somebody else is being subjected to something without their consent that they don't want. And that's equally as important for, for both, for everybody, to be able to figure out how to support that, so um, I I do think it's it's really key to remember that whatever limit setting or even punishing, I'm not a big fan of punishing, but I'm not saying it's never useful. But whatever limit setting or punishing you do, I think you have to realize that is not the primary way that somebody's going to learn something. The primary way they're going to learn something is by that active engaged, reciprocal, play-based, back and forth. And it's not always play-based. It can be conversational too, but it's got to be that give and take, that back and forth. That's how we gradually develop the nuance and sophistication of perspective and points of view. So the limit setting is important, and it's important in terms of keeping people safe and maybe communicating to that sibling that their, you know, the, their bodily integrity matters also. But it's important to realize that's probably not going to teach that child self-control, that that's got to come in a different context. And that's, there's no question, I think that's hard at every age is, and, you know, maybe gets harder in adolescence, where the risks, the risks become more, you know, that you can get arrested, or you can get in trouble. But um, it's hard at any age to figure out how to set limits, but also find ways to positively engage around those topics.
0: I love all the stuff you just said. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from this podcast. If anyone forgets everything else, remember that. Because um, it's one thing to you know, understand that you have to set the limit, but what happens when you're not there to set the limit?
1: That's the right. biggest and worry. That, that's ultimately what we're working towards is, yeah. and I think that's, I, I don't mean this in any judgmental way towards any parent or anybody at all, but I think just having now worked with so many adolescents and adults and having an adult child, like the end goal is for people to be safe and functional people in the world to be able to make decisions. And even if they can't be fully independent, you want them to be able to be as safe as possible and to not end up in jail or whatever it happens to be. So you have to be playing the long game right from the beginning, because even if you set some hard and fast limits so that, you know, there's a rule that we can't sniff butts in this house, that's not necessarily addressing the underlying developmental issue that's going to help them not do that, you know, have a, have a better decision making process as an adult.
0: And I know that those parents were thinking of other ways, like maybe we can sniff feet instead. And that, you know, may be equally inappropriate to some people, but it's it's less inappropriate than sniffing a butt or something like that. But um well, I mean and,
1: you know, I, I think that's where the curiosity and the non-judgment comes in is like, why is this interesting to this kid? Is it some Mm -hmm. sort of sensory stimulation thing? Is it like, who doesn't, don't don't most people think like farting is hysterical? And like, (laughs) you know, like there are lots of contexts in which that's perfectly acceptable and normal, maybe without quite the filter that we would expect or the self-restraint, but like, it's not like those ideas or thoughts are something that we're going to purge from that person. So we might as well help them embrace it and figure out how to use it in a safe and functional way. And so maybe it is exploring other kinds of smells, or maybe it is, you know, doing pretend play around farting or butts or whatever, or poop or whatever it happens to be, um, and that that then may also come along with some very specific limit setting about what you can and can't do to other people. Um, but you have to stay curious about what's driving those behaviors.
0: Such an important point. Um, so another parent says. Um, My son gets stuck in negative brain. Everything is bad, awful, and scary. His amygdala amygdala flips out on what-if questions. And we do a lot of work to not deny those things, but to bring him back down to that's not happening right now. So part of educating him is also educating him on safety and boundaries, but not flip his brain into all the bad things that can happen. Not just to him, but to understand how he needs to respect others and not violate their boundaries.
1: Yeah, I think this is the, that that's a it's a great follow up question to everything we've been talking about, because, um, you know, when I talk about um separating somebody to calm them down and co-regulate and reconnect with them, I think it's a, a challenge that those of us, you know, raising children face is, you know, we may have a child who's just very hair trigger reactive, they're they're an anxious type. They are overstimulated easily. They are quick to get into sort of this global negative thinking. And that's, whether you're on the spectrum or not, that's, that's challenging. And it, and it affects your behavior. It affects the decisions that you make. It affects the careers that you choose or the friends that you have or the things that you watch. Because if you're spending a lot of your energy trying to avoid being in fight or flight, trying to avoid these worst case scenarios, then it's going to be really hard to take the kind of emotional risks that we need to take to be able to connect with others and learn and grow and do all of those things. So, um, and I think, you know, going back to sort of a basic DIR concept that this isn't just about the profile of the child, this is also about the profile of the parent or the caregiver and how that matches up with the child. You know, if you're a very sensitive reactive control oriented person and you've got a sensitive reactive control oriented child it's going to be harder for you that's going to be harder to work that out um but i think ultimately what you want to try to do is find however narrow it may be is find that band where your child is a little dysregulated a little anxious a little concerned but still able to open and close circles and to maybe laugh or be challenged in the context of play or other, other forms of floor time, because once they get into that sort of rigid catastrophic thinking, you're not going to be able to use logic or information to help them. In most cases, you're going to have to go back to levels one, two, and three calming, soothing, re-regulating, re-engaging and interacting and trying to work your way back up to that cognitive level. Uh, but that's you know that's where medication can help. That's where occupational therapy can help. That's where you know whatever however you construct your environments can help give people as much latitude as they can to interact around a subject without getting into fight or flight. And that again, for some people, that's going to be very, very hard. Um, and think about, I, I think, you know, you can think about this in very concrete ways. Think about like people who are scared of dogs, you know, how do you, how do you help them overcome that? Probably not just by throwing them into a dog pen, <laughs> you know, like you've got to, you've got to come at it in lots of different ways. You have to help them have supported, positive experiences with dogs. You have to kind of talk at a cognitive level about, you know, whatever the science of dog, there's like a lot of different ways that you try to address that. and. Also, realistically, you may just have to avoid dogs more than other people do. And you know, I I, I see you as a signal. <laughs> I'm not going to dig into that deeply with you, but like, it's and you know, you can probably reflect on this better than I can. But like, it there's not one thing that will fix it, and it's probably not always totally fixable. But with sort of gentle nurturing support, you can figure out a way to integrate that part of yourself into your life so that you can function. And so if you're somebody who's quick to get anxious or whether it's time anxious or some sort of social anxiety or whatever, you're going to have to do a lot more anticipating and preparing and approaching things gently and not staying in them too long and, then processing the successful or the unsuccessful experiences. It's just a lot more, there's a lot more scaffolding that needs to happen to help somebody get better at those things.
0: And I find that a lot of our kids really do get stuck. Um, I I think of sometimes at school drop-off where my son will just be focused on, you know, something that he just won't let go of. And then Sometimes the teacher will have to say like, oh, so-and-so is waiting for you with a surprise. And then boom, he snaps right out of it and can move on. Now that's gonna not resolve the underlying harping on things, but it, it almost gets obsessive. Like, um, I, I wanna go here after school. I wanna do this after school. What's gonna happen after school? What are we doing after school? Blah, 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 on and on, just harping on it. And then sometimes I feel like it's almost better for him to snap him out of it with a distraction because it could just go on forever.
1: <laughs> well, and you know this gets back to I think individual profiles that you know people with sticky brains or take deep dives into things or who don't shift gears easily. That's you don't have to be on the spectrum for that, but that's you know certainly a, a, a common thing, and I think it takes recognition of the people around that person that they're going to tend to be more stuck or rigid. And there, there may be very, you know, particular individualized things that work, you know, a snap out of it kind of a thing. Um, You know, and uh, uh, certainly, I know a lot of my work is now with with um, older people. But I think, as much as possible, you want to try to be collaborating with the person that you're supporting, to let them know, hey, there may be times when you get really stuck, and I'm going to say snap out of it. And this is like, it's not a judgment, I'm just trying to help you, you know, so that it can become a collaborative self-aware experience over time. And again, maybe you're not doing that a lot with a three-year-old, but you're going to do that more and more with a seven or a 10 or a 13-year-old, you know, trying to bring them into the process of what you're doing to help them. Um, And that will also over time help them to get better at saying, yeah, actually, that's not helpful you know, let's, let's work together to figure out a better way for you to help stop me from obsessing about this. You know, that would be the ideal. And I, again, I don't have any illusions that, you know, everybody's going to sit down, you know, with a notepad with you and say, let's work this out together. (laughs) But that's sort of the larger idea is that you want the person you're supporting to gradually become more self-determining. And that means working with them to get them engaged in helping you support them.
0: I love that. And I think that's my personal takeaway from this episode, because I, I can think about last week when my son had a really red eye and I had to put eye drops in his eye and he was having none of it. And I had to just stop and say, look, I'm your mama. It's my job to take care of you. And I have to take care of you. I can't let this eye infection get worse. Or you might have to go to the hospital. We don't want to have to go to the hospital if, if this this can make you know lots of blah, 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 blah but just trying to soothe them and co-regulate them through it. And oftentimes it's just, you do it once and then, and then, oh, that wasn't bad. Like I think about the COVID vaccine, 45 minutes of like holding them down and screaming and this, and then it's done and he's totally fine. Hey, let's go to the toy store now.
1: (laughs) Those are great examples. And I think that I I, I like that sort of idea that you're sort of reiterating both for yourself and for your child, like, you know, I'm the mom here. Like I have certain responsibilities, you know, things that I need to do. And I'm not doing this to make your life miserable, Mm -hmm. even though you may not enjoy this. This is something that has to be done because um, I'm actually sort of reflecting on, I, I took my dogs to the groomer this morning. And one of them in particular hates it with a passion. She's trembling as she's going in. And I'm like, why am I even doing this to her? This is, I'm going to be miserable all day. And she's going to be miserable all day. And there is a sort of a cognitive override that says, like, this is a safe place. She's been here before. It's, you know, she'll get some necessary maintenance done. You know, like there are reasons why it's a good thing to do, but you do have to kind of go through an override. And I think if you can have a clear sense of, like, I'm the mother and this is my job, then that will help make it a little bit easier. And at the same time, I think it's also useful to sometimes say, Okay, I think this is my job. Is this really important? Do I really need to do this? Does this dog really need to go to the groomer? Do I really need to stop this child from sniffing people or whatever it happens to be? And sometimes the answer will be yes, and sometimes it will be no. And the the last thing I'll say about that, which kind of ties into um, the earlier conversation, is I think... And I think this is true for all parents and all parenting, but I think it's particularly true for the kinds of kids that we tend to be thinking about, is that you have got to be consulting with other people. You have got to have a support network as a parent. And it's not just another parent or a grandparent or another caregiver. It's You've got to have some outside people, whether it's a friend or a professional or somebody else, you know, that you can actually sort of talk this stuff through and get some outside grounding. Because the more you're in those bubbles with your child, the harder it is to know whether you're doing the right thing or saying the right thing or doing the right thing. And I just think it's really important to get outside help.
0: I like that. And I'll refer people to ICDL's parent support group, which I facilitate every Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, icdl.com under the parents tab or affect autism under events. Uh, Speaking of grooming, I still have to clip my son's toenails while he's asleep. No (laughs) other way around it.
1: (laughs) Well, and uh, we work with a young man who's um, actually started college uh, this semester. And he's I mean, his fingernails are probably three quarters of an inch long, you know, beyond his fingers. He does not like cutting his nails and he doesn't let people cut them. And, you know, there are are certainly sort of social implications to that. Um, But part of the process for him and his family over the years has been sort of a gradual education and self-awareness project. So he kind of is more attuned to how other people might react to him because of that. But also, ultimately, in this case, his parents saying, this is your decision. Um, and they don't necessarily say that about every behavior, but this one, it wasn't worth going to war over. Um, and so, you know, those are those are complicated and individualized decisions that we as parents are always having to make. How is this a place where I'm laying down the laws, this is the place where I'm drawing a line or whatever it happens to be. I don't like sort of the war metaphors, but you know, when am I gonna fight a battle and when am I going to let something go? Um, and keeping in mind always that larger goal is the autonomy and safety and purposefulness of your child as an adult.
0: Now I had the pleasure of interacting with a 25 year old autistic young man and whose mother I knew Um, a few years back. And I, it was the first time I met them and I I haven't met them since. Um, And I asked him about fingernails and he said, it, it's so grating to have fingernails clipped And the way he described the feeling to me and how aversive it was to him really gave me a lot of insight into it too, because we just assume it's fine for us. So why isn't it fine for you? But when they have those intense sensory experiences (laughs) That we can't relate to. um, It's important to be respectful of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, there, I'm sure, um, you know, your listeners and parents around the world can come up with any number of problems that we would find intractable and not solvable. So, you know, I don't have any illusions that, that these guiding principles are going to help us solve every problem, but I think you got to keep coming back to the guiding principles about you know, what, what you're actually trying to support your child in becoming as an adult and sort of teasing out like how much things are important because you believe they're important versus they're important because of some actual external cause or reason. And those, that's hard. And that's why you need other people to consult with sometimes to say, should I be making a big deal about these nails? And, you know, some people will say yes and some people will say no, but at least you'll have more points of view and be able to develop a more sensible rationale behind your your ultimate actions.
0: Yes, I love that. So the last thing I'd like to cover is the idea of symbolic uh, thinking, because children get into symbolic thinking, you know, around FEDCs, four, five, six, something around there and certainly higher as well. But if a child isn't symbolic yet, it's going to be really hard for them to understand the concept of love or, you know, a relationship and um, having abstract things. Uh, do you want to touch on that piece? And and sure. and also maybe we can tie this back into what we didn't finish about that last question, which is having the talk with somebody about yeah. the birds and the bees.
1: Well, and this goes back, I think, to the to the earlier. Uh, podcast about puberty as well. And maybe a little bit to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, we, we meaning me, I'll just speak about me, like, you know, I like to use language, I speak in conceptual, abstract, complex language. And that's comfortable for me. And I have a sort of default assumption that other people are going to be able to do that same thing. But the reality is, whether you're talking, whether you're interacting with young children or children with developmental challenges of of whatever kind, you can't necessarily speak from your comfort place. You have to kind of meet them where they are. And when you're talking about issues of behavioral control and particularly, you know, sexuality, for somebody who doesn't have, you know, strong symbolic thinking, they don't have symbolic language or that's only emerging – then you are going to be limited more to having to kind of create behavioral control keep people out of situations that they get into trouble in or you know setting actual physical or other kinds of limits to keep people from doing things that they shouldn't be doing and you're not always going to be ex- be able to explain why this brings us back to play and why play is so important because when you are beginning to see things in that visual domain and represent ideas with other things, that's going to help you develop that language ability to do that. So um, I think it's just a a universal challenge is how to communicate with people without using a lot of spoken language. Um, Certainly, I think visual cues and visual supports and pictures are great, and there's a you know, there's a lot of books about sexuality that are geared towards um, elementary and middle school age children that use a lot of, you know, pictures and sort of word easy on the words, you know, and more sort of visual and conceptual. And I think all of those things are really important to try to uh, take advantage of. Um, I don't think that means that and and to speak to the idea about sort of an abstract concept like love. um, You know, I don't know if you've read a lot of Stanley Greenspan or or listened to him a lot. um, He often would use the example of how we how we learn what an apple is, you know, that an apple isn't just, um, you know, it's not just a red ball. It's it's invested with emotional meaning, how it tasted the first time we. Bit into it, or what it felt like when I threw it at my brother. Or, you know, there's sort of emotional meaning invested in all of these things. And that's really what I think you have to do around a concept like love is that love is a million different things. And you're, you, it's not about the labeling so much, but you're sort of putting things in the category of love. So, you know, baking somebody cookies is an act of love, or putting them to bed is an act of love. And so you have to kind of, help somebody have experiences, but then gradually categorize those experiences. So one way, for example, one way that I could imagine doing it is if you picture, and I used to do this with one client in particular, we had a timeline. It was basically like a calendar. And this wasn't around sexuality, but I think you'll get the idea. We would, each week when I would see him, he would sort of report to me things that had happened. And sometimes he would be reporting things that had happened six months ago and sometimes things that had happened, you know, the day before and gradually through sort of play and interaction and using the visual support of the timeline, we, he was able to get better at sort of saying, okay, this happened last week or this happened yesterday. And we would put a little, you know, a picture, a little stick figure picture of the thing that had happened, you know, on the timeline. And then over time, that gave us the ability to categorize these things. So, for example, we could look at the timeline and say, all right, point to all of the things that were fun. And so then, you know, we could point to 10 different experiences that were fun, point to the things that were not fun. And so that begins to help somebody think more conceptually. So you can imagine, you know, a series of, of, of you know, activities that a parent and a child have gone through, and then working with them to categorize what are the things that were enjoyable, or were basically a form of love. And so you can begin to build the conceptual out of the specific.
0: I love that. Um, thank you so much for all of your insights and um, examples, Dave. And I really appreciate it. Um, listeners, please look at the blog post at affectautism.com. And you'll all have links to past podcasts and things that were mentioned that referred to that you can go back and learn more about throughout the blog post. Uh, I'll look forward to, um, well, by the time, well, I'm I'm not sure. By the time this podcast goes out, I may have met you in person at the New York City Conference, uh, ICDL Rebecca School DIR Conference. So I look forward to meeting you in person, Dave. (laughs) Thanks again. Me
1: too, Daria. Thanks so much.
0: Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day.